This is Integrating Technology, episode 47. Integrating Technology for a living. Integrating Technology for fun. Integrating Technology to help people get shit done. Welcome to Integrating Technology, episode 47. My name is Patrick Murray. Today on the podcast, we interview Wes Hatchett of Control Envy. And I've known Wes for a few years now and have worked with the Control Envy platform before. And it's pretty exciting to watch the entire progression of how this is really becoming a product and the different implementation strategies that they are adopting. It's a really cool interview and definitely taking things to another level. And I also have to say, I'm really enjoying this new format I've stumbled upon where I talk to companies who are doing things in a different way and really just get to ask them all these questions about how it works, what the benefits are, what challenges they've had, and where it all fits into the grand scheme of things of where AV control systems programming is headed. So if you know anybody or if there's any companies on your radar or new products that you think would be a good fit for the podcast, please put them in touch with me. Let me know. Go to integratingtechnologypodcast.com, use the contact form, and I'd love to talk with more people who are doing interesting things and really pushing the envelope with control and automation. Before we get started, just a quick update on what I'm working on. I've recently released a HTML5 programming course, how to make control interfaces with HTML5, CSS, and JavaScript. It's about about 75-80% of the lessons are complete, and this is really the result of my programming company's experience over the past few years of using HTML as a control interface. We started off using Angular templates, and that was probably, in hindsight, the wrong move to start using a framework right away. And there are benefits which we enjoyed, but we also ran into problems when things needed to be updated. Uh, Different developers would be on different versions, and things would get a little strange at times. And over the years, we just kept asking the question, how do we reduce this down to something just to the basics? What do we really need? Because we're not creating websites. We don't always need the greatest technology that's popular in the web development world because we're making control interfaces. We're not making websites. And the result of that is we're really just using HTML, JavaScript, and CSS with no frameworks at all. No frameworks for the layout, no frameworks for updating the dome. It can really all be done with those foundational web technologies. And it's also a great way to learn everything. Uh, I wish I used this approach first because then moving into an Angular or React or Vue, whatever framework you use, moving into one of those projects, it becomes a lot clearer of what's going on because you understand what's going on under the hood. But it turns out that you know, using web components and JavaScript classes, we could really create these reusable components and um, it's just been great for our workflow and turning projects around. So I decided to make a course mainly for internal training so we could train other programmers to help us with our projects. And of course, the LearnAVProgramming.com website is there, so why not release it as a full-featured course? And as an introduction, we made kind of a a very long blog post, three pages long, where you could kind of get a bird's-eye view of what this technology means for us in the AV programming space. And you could check that out at LearnAVProgramming.com slash 
HTML and have a read through that. And then there's a sign up at the end where you could get a bunch of emails about our experiences using this in real projects. And of course, if you'd like to sign up for the course, it would be an honor to help you get your hands dirty and really learn how this stuff works. Okay, on with the interview. Wes, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Patrick, thanks. So to get the ball rolling, could you, you've, you've been on the podcast before, and I'll, I'll say in the introduction what episode that was, but just to kind of freshen us up here, bring us up to date, can you give us a one or two minute, minute introduction about um, Control Envy, what you're all about, where you're from, and what you do at the company? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am the CEO, and I'm also one of the founders, and Control Envy is a, a control system where actually at this point we can turn an Android smartphone into a professional class control system what? that support, yep, um, supports large projects, a lot of industry brands that I'm sure you'd be familiar with, you know, Lutron and um, Sonos and, and some of the big ones uh, in a, a system where we can then support multiple clients. I mean, lots of HTML5 based uh, interface clients that connect to this and, you know, in an IP based system, uh, we've, we've got this running in some large places. So that's a, uh, that's been the big change for us. I'd say since I was on the podcast last is really treating Android as a first class citizen there uh, to running our software, but we're a software based control system and uh, it's really full stack there. Uh, the other big change since I was last on the podcast is we've we've now got a setup engine, web-based setup engine that drives 100% of the setup process. Uh, so whereas before we were uh, still custom configuring and sort of in our private beta stage, uh, we've really brought that into production now. And uh, the Android app is, you know, makes deployment really simple. And uh, that's what we do. So... <laughs> Hang on a minute here, just for clarity. Normally, uh, in a traditional AV system, I would have this black box that I put in the rack and get some special software and and um, learn from uh, the old masters how, how to use it and compile this thing and upload it to this black box. And you're telling me that, how do I visualize this? It, it, it's a phone installed in a rack. It's, it's an app that runs on multiple devices in one system. Help me get, get a grasp on, on what you mean by Android. Yep. So like you said, let's, let's take that traditional control system example and run with that. Um, so say you would traditionally have um, a processor, a, a box that supports some form of proprietary software in terms of how you would set that up. And that's usually referred to as the brain, I think is the, the way you hear it in the industry a lot. So we're a software based company. And we knew from the beginning, we, we would never create a hub or ship our own piece of hardware that our system was dependent on. And we've been down you know, plenty of exploratory roads with that, including Raspberry Pi and those types of, of products. What we really found there was any performance questions aside, by the time you had to build those boxes from a kit and then somehow flash install uh, or hard provision a ROM onto that board and, and ship it that way, there were just so many questions around it. And we're fundamentally a Linux-based processor. So that's what our brain um, 
is built around and runs on and node based, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of what's going on under the hood. So we started looking at it and said, well, what's a device that continues to scale in computing power continues at this point to you know, almost outpace what laptops uh, or personal computers are doing is in the mobile space. And Android is built in such a way that we were able to develop an app uh, that it boots directly with the phone, runs really as a system level service. Um, and we've got systems out there with you know, hundreds of days of uptime. Um, before, you know, without even having to restart, restart the software side of what's running inside that app. But so think of a, a Google Pixel 4a is one of the devices that we would consider. That's a great option. If you wanted to run the system right now, you can pick it up anywhere for $349. You can buy them in bulk. And out of the box with Android 11, uh, you go to our website, download the app, uh, put in an invite code, and you've got a control system up and running. From there, you're able to access the kinds of applications. So the first question would be, well, how do I set this system up? How do I you know, configure it to do something? There's a setup app for that that's web-based. And then what's the end result of the control app, You know, the, the end user application uh, that I would think of in the traditional way? How does someone walk up to an iPad on the wall or their phone or whatever and adjust the thermostat or watch TV? Uh, is through the control app. And we've moved actually to progressive web app for that as well, which has been really exciting technology that's it's fun to be on the bleeding edge of testing that. But you put the two together, I'm able to pick up a $349 phone from just about anywhere, from Best Buy, what have you, uh, install the app to that, put it in the rack, put it anywhere where I've got you know good Wi-Fi reception that I, that I want to have it um, housed and we've oh, seen a couple different options including people who've put yeah go ahead it, well tell me about that i'm interested in that that practical so i got this thing in my hand and mm -hmm. I, I leave it in the rack like on a shelf yeah mm -hmm. yeah and it um, connects over wi-fi correct which that's that's another interesting point i'll circle back there in a second but yeah, we've seen people who, I mean, you know, the rack style that you can get a little drawer or you can either get a one U faceplate and, you know, it's sitting behind there. So it doesn't have to be something that's in the uh, end user's face, but it is nice for a technician to be able to uh, get to it. Of course, all of the information about what it's running and its status, you can see through the web clients. So you never uh, need well. to touch it once it's set up, right? You don't need the display. That's correct. Anything. That's right. And our experience in the real world with that is actually playing out very well, that we, we don't need to touch it. Um, everything you know, can be administered remotely and et cetera through it. And that's actually one of the things that we're uh, tweaking in the app right now is to give uh, end users and integrators the ability uh, to toggle the remote tunnel on and off. Um, we, we ship with it off right now. And uh, that's so that's just an interesting little security piece. But yeah, on the Wi-Fi question, um, that was one that was presented early on as well. You know, the brain of the system is typically hardwired, and mm. I understand the thought process. I mean, you you, you see these thoughts evolve um, through the years. I'm sure we both remember when people were making serious arguments to stick with serial for the most part instead of IP. It's just and you know, an ex perceived extra layer of complication. But the Wi-Fi question is, well, if, if all of my client devices effectively, if, if it's iPads and um, 
iPhones or even Surface tablets, you know, whatever I'm going to run this environment in or the control app in. Um, if that's all dependent on Wi-Fi, then doesn't it make sense that my brain, to an extent, becomes a, a QoS uh, of its own, you know, through through the Wi-Fi network because, because it's also it's- depending. Because it's being monitored from some cloud entity as well, correct? So you'll yeah, know if it goes I mean, offline. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's there's a statistics there on if it's communicating properly, and and it's just the the age old question of well, let's say it was hardwired, and the Wi-Fi network goes down for some reason that or that yeah. side of it is, is what's having an issue. Uh, are you in a better place to service that? with the brain itself being hardwired. And, you know, you could say, well, maybe so, you know, maybe maybe I do have another level of connectivity there that I could continue to do something. And for that purpose, we are a Linux based product. So in a lot of the, in those systems where that's an important conversation, uh, our best option right now is the Mac mini M1. It's got a nice industrial design at the right price at the right performance level. um, And, you know, we're, installing on that uh, in a you know very similar sandbox that'll be there as a system service when it boots up and so mm-hmm. that's a um that's different than a 349 dollar pixel but yeah. maybe the system warrants that you know but we we've been extremely happy with what we're seeing out of the the whole point of the android solution for us was we like what we're doing in, with the software but we have to get this into hands we have to make it easier to deploy be that someone inside an IT department and some stuff they might have running around, uh, laying around that they could test on, uh, you know, or being that inside of a project where uh, someone is saying, all right, what is the right piece of hardware to power this? And, and having an answer besides getting a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> where do I start? I, I, I'm worried about the phone because it's such a critical part of the system and it looks like a phone. So if somebody stumbles on it, and sees it there, right? It's, it might be a little too easy to just unplug and walk away or, or something like that. But uh, I'm sure there's clever ways around that. And like you said, you get a Mac mini if you need that appliance that looks like an appliance to be built in and uh, look like it's doing something important. Right. And if you want to run a, a Linux virtual machine, I mean, that's, you know, we're, it, it's all there in the same ballpark, but it's, it's been a really nice step for us to have something that is a, a professional class installer, uh, you know, with a very known quantity that if you buy that phone, install the app and punch in your invite code, you will have a control system ready to work, you know, ready to be configured, ready to do things in the real world within minutes. Very cool. And so the next step is uh, a configuration web page, which is different than the actual end user control, correct? Uh, correct. Yep. And we call that setup. And uh, what that is, is just a, a web-based GUI. It's all drop-down based and uh, getting better every day. You know, just, just really looking at every level of from the typesetting to what, what information is useful to installers. Uh, it's got live debug abilities. And that's from, from my background, that's really been the biggest piece is that those debug tools end up being specialized as well. Even though we have a lot of technicians and owners and you know in this industry who truly know what they're looking at, 
Um, and there's, because of the specialty software, I think programmer, the programmers of the projects through some years got the inside track on being able to even do meaningful troubleshooting or, uh, you know, a lot of it. And so we've built those real-time indicators directly into the setup app. So as soon as I add a component and either if it's a device discovery piece, which you know, we discover Sonos, we discover Apple TV, um, we're adding in discovery for Sony equipment. So we're, we're moving more and more in that direction. Um, but at the same time, when, whenever I connect to a piece of equipment, I can see the status of that connection. I can then jump into a, really a true debug window and see what's going back and forth in the, the RXTX level in between a component and issue some quick commands. So I can actually, if I had a Sony TV, for example, I can, you know, throw an IP address in uh, or a host name, what, you know, whatever it is on that network, see that it's connected, go into the debug tools, fire a power on, power off at it, and know that that component is working really within, within a few seconds of adding it. So there's no secondary step to, uh, troubleshooting and if i see if i add a component and i immediately see well it's not connecting and it should be then i know to take a look at my network or whatever the yeah. case may be so blending those experiences i've i say to our team a lot it's it's almost like our setup app is it has a lot of the features that you might normally consider to be a quote unquote dashboard sure. um, we're not doing uh, yet a lot of analytics built into that package. So we're, that's, that's on the near term or at least midterm roadmap. But what we are doing with yeah. the real-time information is giving you the ability to uh, really maintain the systems and know what's going on at a glance. So, you know, most of us have had not the best experiences with room builders and configuration, you know, if, if it's a simple system, okay, fine. But mm -hmm you know, I'm familiar with your product. So that's why I'm not going to ask too much about the UI because you just see it, you'll know, okay, it's, I don't need to modify that. But coming back to what I wanted to say is, um, I, it's nice to hear that you're considering the experience of the installer uh, because that's a UX that I think is very often ignored. Uh, I agree. Yeah. And that's, that probably speaks to where, a lot of our team comes from because we've, we, you know, we, we have been through and still do, you know, use a lot of those tools and know how important they are. Um, and I also know beyond the installer, I know how many qualified people have in a lot of cases been locked out of the conversation yeah. uh, just because they, they didn't have or couldn't interpret, you know, this specialized tool. So yeah, just distilling that information, I, it, I think is, has has been great. Yeah. So so you've got this back end where I could set everything up, do some troubleshooting, you know, really focus on the integration part, make sure everything is talking to each other. On the other end, there's another app for the user interface, which is pre-configured and kind of populates itself, I guess, based on the configuration. Um, yep. And I would normally ask, you know, can I make my own UI? But I've seen yours and <laughs> there's no reason to make a new one. But what about in the middle? Is there a way to, is the logic already done for you? Um, and, and how does that work? Because like when I, when I want to watch TV, I got to turn the TV on. That's obvious. So things like that, I have no problem with that being baked into the cake. But what happens when you get the odd request to 
you know, I don't know, pause Netflix when the doorbell rings. Right. Yeah, that's that's an interesting example. They they do I would lean towards saying those are the kinds of use cases that you know we're still looking at. Okay, what are the most common ones, even that push the edges to to build in? Mm. Like one example that's easy is how would I what if I wanted to set up lighting a lighting macro for when this room turns on and off and you know you wanted that five minute delay or something upon exit in a theater or what have um and so we've actually built that into the room level setup directly of okay we know that's a common request so why make you work too hard for it let's just put that right there that you i can have lighting macro or possibly even other event macros you know tied to the startup shutdown of a room um something like the doorbell request there's actually a a pretty deep level of being able to control what amount to the what amounts to the api and we refer to it in terms of paths because everything relates back to how it is stored and updated in real time in the data store so the data store is essentially a real-time database that uh, sits behind the back end of the product, runs on that uh, Android phone, and this you know is where that that is all taking place. So it is fully localized. Mm-hmm. There's no cloud dependency. If the internet goes down, your system's still going to work and all of that. Um, but so everything is replicated at that fog level on the Android device. So when the doorbell comes in, you're going to have a database object literally goes from you know to hey the doorbell state is ringing is now true and you're going to have paths that can that can flow out from there so you that would be at this moment in time if you needed that today i would probably put you in touch with engineering and we would we would make a quick decision and say okay is this something that we want to to get you going immediately here's a command we run in the javascript console and this will put a, a certain conditional in there so that when we see this trigger, we do the other. Uh, and then the longer term, or maybe you know, very quickly, would be let's update that in, a, in part of the schema that gets represented and set up so that you actually have a visual to that from a web form as well. Um, so it can be a two-stage process. And that's, that's the nice thing is that it, there's there's a structure behind the scenes that is in no way a black box in and of itself. And yeah, one of yeah. the things that, yep. Um, you, I mean, you, I know you have some familiarity with the data store and what those paths are like. Um, that's a documentation effort that we're really ramping up because that's the interaction of that data store and any of the end user clients, be that the setup app or the control app, they're all responding to that data chain. And uh, it's very, it's very different in that way. You almost have to think of it in a sense backwards of when you first get started in an AV programming, it's push the button and have it do something. Yes. Right. But this is very um, state based, you know, data based so that everything stays in sync. And uh, for that reason, though, the paths are there and accessible. And I think that's, Right now, we're really working on the use cases that that we know our room builder. Because, like you said, we've we've certainly played with many of them, and there's there's things that you can say, "Wow, this part worked great." But what about these edge cases? Uh, we're doing a lot right now with the subzoning 
logic for audio zones, for example, you know, what, what happens by default when I start adding components to a room that, for example, I add that Sony TV to a new room. Okay. Well, now I add a Sonos beam was the, is the setup engine smart enough to understand that both of those components have a speaker, but that by default, I would maybe want the beam speaker, but that should also be very, maybe I only want a Sonos speaker for audio in the room and I want the others to the TV. So, you know, all of that level of logic, we're trying to walk the right line of uh, giving, actually having that level of, I'm going to throw around the, the AI, you know, buzzword, but it's just what it really is, is just picking the right defaults for you based on, all right, how much do we know? How much does the system know about the components you've already added to this room? And when can it detect an overlap or a case in which we're hoping to make the best decision for? So you're creating a user experience. And to contrast that, right, we used to get a blank touch panel and a blank processor, and we could do whatever the heck we wanted. And sometimes you still need that. But a lot of systems, it's, I don't want to say it's obvious, but it's good to have constraints and be able to say, this is how it works. I know how it works and it's going to work this way every time. And okay, there'll be new features, so it will be improved, but um, maybe you don't want to be able to do whatever you want on every single project because you just wind up making more duplication. Um, and that brings me to my yes. next question is, are there any particular types of systems where control MB works best? Yeah. Well, the, the products that we have the best prepared right now in terms of the, uh, out of the box through the setup engine, the system, we can make the system work in some really interesting ways. Typically, those would fall closer to residential uh, in terms of we've got some great distributed audio and, and audio sharing logic and you know, support for products like audio control and in the home theater space like Barco and Meridian and um, you know, NAD. I mean, there's, there's a, a lot of different products that you can actually build out a, a large system. You know, if you start looking at, or I'm using Sony TVs and I'm using Kaleidoscape and Roku, Apple TV, you know, this, uh, this, this handful of pieces. Uh, but I can actually scale it out in a lot of different rooms where I've got a high-end home theater and a nice media room and some, you know, some other Sonos zones and cameras and whatever else. Um, re really reliable there in the residential world. In the on the commercial side, we do have a couple of projects coming up this spring where we're going to standardize the like multiple displays in a room and and, and inside of a video conferencing context. Um, so we we will have some use cases pretty quickly coming along. I'd say we're commercial um, at that general level there of you know the stuff that we've deployed uh, custom. We're going to be bringing those use cases into the fold. And you know some of the projects even you and I have done together. I mean, you look at uh, you know one of those apps in particular at a at a glance, it's very it's a very similar interface. You know between a say a media room and a conference room. Um, and, you know, so that's, it's, it's really about the components is, uh, and, and I think the residential component set, including Lutron, is uh, something that we're really strong with right now, but we've got some, some commercial uh, targets in the near term, uh, including Biant, for example. 
um, and starting to bring, you know, a lot of our knowledge about how have we integrated BiAMP with other systems in the past to, all right, what are we now able to do with a setup engine that's able to even pull in data directly and, and customize the setup experience even more uh, from knowing what's configured on that BiAMP device, for example. Uh, so your background, like your company, Control Envy, started out as an independent programming company, and now you've got this product. So can you tell me a bit about um, what, what, the, uh, what the business model is, who, who you actually sell to, if you have dealers and integrators? Are you still doing custom projects? And you know, just overall, what has that journey been like to go from always doing custom projects to working on this product? It's been a big change and a big change internally in our disciplines, um, you know, getting to the point where you go from keeping up with versions in a, in a fairly complex way inside of the team, you know, and, and we can keep up with it because we're deploying it. But uh, to, to answer your question, yes, we're working with dealers and integrators uh, who are bringing the product uh, to their projects. and knowing that we have a release schedule and a, and a product version, you know, knowing what's being deployed out in the field and, and taking ownership of those Android phones, for example, as, as really a fleet um, has been a, a big shift for us and a, and a shift in our processes and what that requires out of you know, our own versioning and builds and, and everything else. But it, it gets you looking at the full delivery really under a microscope uh, whereas I think when you're custom programming, the, the main focus is on the end result. And there's always tomorrow to go back and, and make things a little better um, or, or leave a project in a place where it will probably never fully evolve, uh, you know, but, it, but it's mm -hmm. good enough and you, and you learn some things along the way. Uh, that's actually been the most exciting metric to me looking at control envy over the past six months is of all of the deployments there's only a few now that are truly custom that are that are still you know still running still out there and and on the uh list to circle back to but the reason for that it, it all the other versions along the way have been upgrading so much more quickly to the latest so you can see that trending pattern of where you know, anything we've deployed within the past year is effectively already on the latest version because the update pathway was, was that much simpler. Yeah. Um, and I think that's been one of those riddles that from us that, you know, that came from deep in the uh, high level or, you know, master's level type of programming communities. How can you leave systems behind that have a chance of being seamlessly updated in the future when you need to come back to them, both so that they can benefit from new features, uh, as well as uh, so that you know what you're supporting. And there's obviously lots of question marks in there. And that's actually what's really exciting on the starting to work with in delivering a product is now the systems that run a lot of those checks for what you know, what should red flag as this might be an issue to update versus what should, should do it seamlessly. That's been a lot of fun. And I can see the results in that because we have so many uh, deployments now that are one, you know, update command away from running the absolute latest version of the product. And our confidence that, that that's a good thing 
is is really, I think, indicative of that change. Yeah. So you put a lot of work in to get there. Uh, you took a lot of chances early on. When I think about this, like, what do you think of the independent programming business model at all? Like, do we, if if we want to stay the way we are, are we reliant on manufacturers to give us those tools? Or do we have to go in the direction you went to, which not everybody's going to want to do? Um, is it really an either or decision? Because the expectations are changing, right? These our systems need to be updated and maintained and remotely managed and, and, and what are your thoughts right. on your typical, I don't know, one or two man shop independent programming company? I see it very much as you just want to be relevant with the technology you're working with. And you very much have a place because there are tons of customers in you know both markets that have real needs. And I've read some of that, you know, and, and even some of the stuff on your website. And I, th I think you've got it spot on is just how do you transition to learning how to do something with HTML, you know, and, and making that more than just a buzzword and, and something that can really affect not only who you're hiring, but the kind of stuff you're working in day to day and all of that. Um, our goal always with Control Envy, because we've, we've supported and still do uh, open source frameworks in the Crestron community, for example, for years, and have, and still have users saying, "Hey, we use this for our big projects," or you know, we've, mm. you know, people that we uh, meet that you know we haven't ever met before, and they say, "Yeah, we've been using the framework for five years, and and it's been great." And I think the balance we found with that was it was created in these proprietary tool sets, but it was documented and it was open and it, and it was from the very beginning, you can customize this. Hopefully we're giving you something out of the box that has enough value that you can just run with it. But it's been really impressive to see the kinds of customizations and, and the understanding that people have gained you know, from that framework. So fast forwarding to Control Envy, you know, we are an open source product for a reason. Um, and, and I talked about the, the data store and the nature of, you know, how all of that works. You made the comment, you know, there's a, a TV has to be turned on. So I don't necessarily need, I don't have to rewrite that logical construct at some of those most basic levels, including when the switching chains get more complicated or more timings involved or what have you. Um, I'm actually able to, you know, benefit from that processor, you know, behind the scenes that that actually has some intelligence. I didn't have to tell it how to do every single thing. It, it was able to interpret that at a systems programming level. But in terms of our user experience, um, we still offer uh, customization. So in, in any of our project, um, and you know, we can really create a, a custom user experience if that's what a certain project demands. And you can do that to great lengths. And that's honestly what I would what I would hope for, you know, just from my perspective, for that one or two man shop that might feel like they are perhaps questioning uh, what is, you know, the future business pipeline or or even their skill set look like in, in a particular proprietary set. If you gain an understanding of how control envy works and you're able to uh you know use C uh, css and html5 and you know say some of the these different um these relevant new standards based technologies for creating an experience then you could actually find i think a lot of 
work to be done. A lot of great stuff in modifying, customizing, expanding a product like that. So that's the reason that Control Envy is open source. I mean, we didn't, if, if our only goal had been to ship it effectively as a software black box, then I think we could have taken other shortcuts, perhaps, you know, to even getting our end result shipping faster. But that was never what we were committed to. You know, we, we were still committed to the idea that in order to really serve the needs of this market, you have to have a flexible product. And that means that at the end of the day, we can't be the only team capable of modifying it. So yeah. it, it's taken a lot of work to get there, but I think deep, deeply rooted, we know even the success we've had with the Crestron frame. So we believe that we can be a landing point for people that, like you said, they want to work in interesting stuff, deliver great results, get stuff done. Um, you know, I mean, one of the number one rules you'll read is like, hey, if you want to do a startup, don't platform build. And that, that's always been kind of funny to me, but. <laughs> I really appreciate that answer. Thanks a lot, Wes. Um, I'm going to have to go jump into the repo and, and see if I could learn anything. Any final thoughts? Um, no, I think it's an exciting time to be in the market. You know, things opening up again and there's, feels like there's a lot of work to be done and, and some refresh in certain uh, organizations or, you know, residences or what have you, where let's, let's get off to a fresh start with some new systems and make stuff work right. And what we're all about. All right. How would somebody get in touch with you if they wanted to do that? Uh, my direct email address is just Wes at control And honestly, I'd love to hear directly from any of your listeners. So just contact me and let's have a conversation. Nice. Thanks a lot, Wes. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. Look forward to doing it again sometime. Thanks for listening to Integrating Technology. If you have a moment, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. It really does help other AV professionals find us in the podcast world. Thanks. Okay, hush button. Do you know what the most used function is during a video conference? It is muting the microphone. And a typical conference room may have a touch panel at one end of the table, but that doesn't do the rest of the meeting participants any good. And that's where the idea of the hush button was born. Why not give everybody at the table a way to reach out and mute their microphone and be able to see very clearly at a glance which microphones are on and which are off. It's a simple lighted switch that gets built into the table. It's designed to accept a table microphone or also known as a boundary microphone. It could also be used with ceiling microphones. And because it has a open API, it can actually be programmed to do just about anything. You could select a laptop with it, turn a system on and off, or click five times fast and call a taxi if that's what's required. So if you have an AV project coming up and you want to give each user at the table, the simplest control interface on the market. Please go to catchtechnologies.com and have a look at Hush Button.